Hello, it's Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece here. I just wanted to give you a quick podcast recommendation before beginning the episode, but I'll hand it over to Chris and Elsa from a Flatpak History of Sweden to tell you more. Hello, we're Chris and Elsa, the hosts of A Flatpak History of Sweden. We're looking at Swedish history step by step. From the Stone Age to the modern day, we cover everything from characters like King Weatherhat to famous events like ABBA winning Eurovision. We bring these hidden stories to the English-speaking world wherever you find your podcasts. For more information, find us on Facebook and Twitter as at Sweden. Vikings are included. Fighting at the forefront of the Greeks, the Athenians at Marathon laid low the army of the Gilded Medes. The epigram composed by Simonides on the tomb of the Athenians at Marathon. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 17, The Battle of Marathon. For someone who is unfamiliar or has limited knowledge of Greek history, a town in Greece or a battle isn't probably the first thing that is thought of when mentioning the word marathon. The foot race, the marathon, is what most would first think of. But the modern day marathon foot race would take its inspiration from the Battle of Marathon, as we will see. The Battle of Marathon has been seen as one of the first major historical clashes between East and West. Though a tradition of East versus West existed in the minds of the ancient Greeks to times further back, as seen in mythology, as Herodotus points out in the beginning of his work. But this is the first time that a direct attack from one on the other, is accounted in a written work of history, if we exclude the Athenians and Eretrians' minor role in the Ionian Revolt. Herodotus is also our closest contemporary source to the battle itself, recounting it a couple of generations after it took place. He was born around five to six years after the Battle of Marathon was fought. He would have probably also been able to talk to people who were living at the time and maybe even present at the battle itself. Herodotus's histories is our only contemporary account detailing the battle, and spends less than a page telling us about the actual battle. So as could be imagined, there is much room for interpretation, and historians have been trying to fill the gaps in and provide reasoning for what happened ever since the battle took place. So I will use Herodotus' account as a basis showing how the battle unfolded, and then along the way we will address some of the debates that have arisen over time. We left last episode with Miltiades' speech to attempt to persuade the other generals and most importantly the Polemarch Callimachus, to join battle with the Persians. Miltiades was able to convince Callimachus to action. Each of the generals would take turns each day in leading the army. When one of the generals who had sided with Miltiades was to command, they would give it up in favour of him. Miltiades accepted the commands given to him, but waited for the day it was his turn to command before deciding to attack. So after many days of no action, both sides would once again draw up but this time they would meet in battle. So already some questions arise. Why did both sides hold off in attacking for so long? Why did the Athenians now decide to attack? And who was really in command of the Athenian army? As we have talked about, both sides faced each other for many days before the battle took place, with neither acting. From the Athenian perspective, they had no cavalry or archers, so advancing into the open plain against the Persians, who were formidable in both of these arms, would have been at a great disadvantage to the Athenians. Another point to their delay was probably due to the fact that the Spartans had committed to help 
and each passing day would see it more likely that they would make it to the battlefield. They're awaiting the end of the festival of the Carnier, and the next full moon, which would allow them to march to war with their religious obligations complete. For the Persians, they were now hemmed in at Marathon, with the Athenian army preventing their exit from the plains. Though to launch an attack on the Athenians' defensive position would be folly. The position occupied by the Athenian camp would neutralise the best arm of the Persian force, the cavalry. Then, to rely on a frontal attack of a defensive position against heavy infantry, that would for the most part outclass their own, would spell almost certain defeat. So what made the Athenians finally attack? Most theories revolve around an opportunity presenting itself, such as the formidable Persian cavalry not posing a threat at the time of the attack. We will discuss the question of the cavalry a little bit later, but it does fit into the broader theory that the Persians were preparing to re-embark part of their army for a direct attack on Athens. With the stalemate at Marathon, the Persians would have been looking for other options, as their provisions wouldn't hold out forever. This was a common strategy by the Persians, seeking ways to undermine their enemy before attacking them in a weakened state. So it seems plausible that a decision could have been made to set sail with a strike force to attack Athens directly, while it was undefended. There was also a conspiracy theory circulating in Herodotus' time, that the Alcmionidae were in cahoots with Hippias, and from the hill shone a signal from a polished shield, which was supposed to have informed the Persians Athens was undefended. The rest of the Persian army would stay at Marathon, preventing the Athenian force from withdrawing, effectively back to Athens. In later sources, it's said that some of the Ionians with the Persian army betrayed the Persian intentions to the Athenians, which presented an opportunity for the Athenian army to now advance over the open plain. Also, if the Athenians were aware of the Persian plan, failing to act would see the fall of Athens with its army stranded some 26 miles away. As far as who was in command, we slightly touch on this last episode. Herodotus presents Miltiades as the overall leader of the Greek force, when his plan is voted on, and explains away Callimachus' role as Polemarch is mostly ceremonial. In Herodotus' time, the role of Polemarch was indeed more ceremonial than that of an active war leader. But in 490, the Polemarch was still fulfilling their role by leading an army in the field. In theory, it would seem that Callimachus had overall say in the matters on the army, but with access to a war council made up by the generals of the Athenian tribes. There are two more points that go some way into understanding why Miltiades is given a leading role in Herodotus' account. Firstly, sorry for the spoiler, but Callimachus would die during the battle. Although his importance was recognised after the battle, as a statue was built in his honour, his memory would fade over time. Secondly, tying into this first point, Miltiades, still alive and active in Athenian politics, would spread his own version of events. Later on during Herodotus' time, Miltiades' son, Chimon, was an Athenian statesman and had earned fame during his role in the Second Persian Invasion. So it seems likely that with a continuous political bloodline, they would make sure their version of their family involvement in the defence of Athens and Greece would not be forgotten. Though having said that, it's important not to discount Miltiades' role as a general. He had been the only one that we know of that had fought alongside the Persians back in 513 during the Persian campaign against Scythia. Callimachus would have made use of his insights and placed a lot of stock in the opinions and suggestions he put forward, potentially elevating his importance over the other generals, due to his past experiences. What we end up with in Herodotus could be a garbled representation of this with a little help from what Miltiades and Chimon recounted. Now formed up, ready for battle, the Athenians were arranged into their tribes, each in their phalanx formation side by side. To avoid being outflanked by the Persians, 
the Athenians needed to extend their line to meet the length of the Persians. To accomplish this, the two Athenian tribes in the centre were thinned out to half their depth, so they could then add these ranks to the length of their phalanx instead. This would see the Athenian battle line being weak in the centre, but strong on both right and left flanks. The polemarch Callimachus was stationed with the right on the Athenian line, which was standard practice. In Greek warfare, the right flank was seen as the place of honour, with usually the strongest or largest formation taking up position there. All the way down at the other end, fighting away from their territory, was the Plataean phalanx positioned on the left flank. Across the field approximately 1,500 metres away was the Persian force, also arrayed for battle. The Persian fighting force was made up with peoples from all over their empire, including the Ionian Greeks, who would have been bound by the Persians to provide men for the war when needed. The Persian line was strongest in its centre, with the ethnic Persians along with the Sakei positioned there. The Sakei were a semi-nomadic peoples from the Eurasian steppe, who had been recently incorporated into the Persian Empire. Herodotus doesn't name the rest of the Persian line, and has been mostly assumed that the right and left of the Persian line were made up of light troops from different groups now part of the empire. If you search for a map on the Battle of Marathon, you will normally be presented with two different interpretations of where the forces were deployed in relation to the sea. The most common disposition I have come across is where the Persians have their backs to the sea, while the other has both lines perpendicular to the sea. Herodotus doesn't state where the lines were formed up, but historians for the last couple of hundred years have been trying to use what he does tell us to piece together where on the battlefield they did form up. The main reasoning for putting the sea at the Persians' backs comes from some passages in Herodotus, such as, The advantage was with the foreigners, who were so far successful as to break the Greek line and pursue the fugitives inland from the sea. Then again, after the Greek wings defeated their counterparts, he says, Drawing the two wings together in a single unit, they turned their attention to the Persians, who had broken through the centre. Here again they were triumphant, chasing the routed enemy and cutting them down until they came to the sea. These two lines have gone a long way in recreating the battle with the Persians having the sea at their backs. Though we need to keep in mind, Herodotus wasn't there, and working from second-hand accounts of the battle, or at best first-hand accounts being retold a generation or two later. The version that has the lines of both armies perpendicular to the sea and the Persians backing onto the Great Marsh doesn't rely on what Herodotus is saying, but tries to make more sense of the battlefield from a military point of view. It would make more sense for the Persians to have beached their fleet at the northern end of the bay, where they would have been protected by the dogtail promontory. This in turn would have seen the Persian camp being made near the Great Marsh, protecting the fleet from the land. When an army deploys for battle, they usually form up in front of their camp, as this would allow for the camp to act as a rallying point for the army. The most direct route to Marathon from Athens would have seen the Athenians arrive on the plain at the southern end, making sense for a deployment with the sea to their right flank. To get into a position for them to form up facing the sea front on would see the army having to cross the plains in the face of the Persians, leaving the Athenians susceptible to cavalry attack in this manoeuvre. Also, it doesn't make sense for a military leader to form the army up with the sea to their backs. The only times we really see this happening throughout history is during amphibious invasions in the face of resistance. The Persians, though, landed unopposed, so had the opportunity to position their camp and army in a more advantageous position. Lastly, there may have been other accounts of the battle that are now lost to us, as we hear from the 2nd century traveller Pausanias, who says, At Marathon is a lake, for the most part marshy. Into this ignorance of the roads made the foreigners fall in their flight, and it is said that this accident was the cause of their great loss. 
Being formed up with the Great Marsh at their backs would see the Great Marsh becoming part of the retreat path if the army fell back beyond their camp and towards the ships. But however they were formed up on the battlefield, both sides were now deployed facing each other with 1,500 metres of open ground between them. The Athenians now performed their appropriate sacrifices, and once the promise of success was revealed by the gods, word was given for the Athenians to advance. Advance they did, but in a manner unlike any other battle that the Greeks had fought in before. The advance took place as a run, and they charged the Persian line, closing the 1,500 metre gap without any support from cavalry or archers. The Persians held their ground and waited to meet the advance from the Athenians, who didn't waver in their charge, even though the reputation of the Persians had struck terror into the Greeks' minds before this day. This is another point that has been debated for as long as Herodotus' account has been read. Was it really possible that the Athenians could have run the 1500 metres over open ground before engaging the Persians, and then still being able to fight? In Herodotus' account, there is a single sentence that describes the run, saying, The word was given to move and the Athenians advanced at a run towards the enemy, not less than a mile away. Taking this sentence literally, and at face value, has led many to assume that the Athenians ran, as if running a race non-stop for 1,500 metres into battle. The main argument that has been brought up to show that this couldn't have taken place was the fact that a hoplite carried around 20 kilograms of armour and weapons. Surely by the time he covered the 1,500 metres, he would be too tired and combat ineffective. Though we need to keep in mind that on average, the men of this period were most likely living a much more active and healthy lifestyle than we do today. Also, the hoplite class of citizens were not in a position of struggling to afford food. They were also conditioned physically for warfare, since they were the class that made up the hoplite army. When looking at armed forces in modern times, infantry are expected to carry heavy loads while carrying out arduous tasks, such as pack marches at double time, and still expected to be ready to fight at the end. It all comes down to conditioning. If someone trains for that type of task, they will be much better at carrying out that particular task. We also need to keep in mind that most of the physical competitions at the Olympics were modelled off different aspects of warfare. There was even an event known as the Hoplite Race, where competitors were dressed in full armour and would race up to 800 metres. It seems the most likely fact that would make a full run over 1500 metres implausible is that it would completely destroy the cohesion of the phalanx. Try and imagine a group of hundreds of men arranged in a tight formation with their shields overlapping one another, running for 1,500 metres and keeping that formation intact. Perhaps what we can see is most likely happening is a watered-down version of what Herodotus presents, as it is easy to imagine how certain facts can be embellished over time of an event that would go down to define a generation. The theory, like James Lacey puts forward in his book The First Clash, suggests that the Athenian line would have advanced at a quick march across much of the plain, then once an archery range, the quick march would have turned into a trot to reduce the amount of time they were exposed to Persian fire. This final 200 metres would be probably later recalled as a run by the veterans, who would have also had a healthy dose of adrenaline flowing through their veins. Having now covered the 1500 metres of open ground, the Athenian and Plataean advance collided all along the Persian line. The ensuing engagement will last hours. During the course of the battle, the centre of the Athenian line was overcome by a strong Persian centre and the weakened phalanxes started falling back with the Persians and Sakae advancing. Though the advance of the Persians would see them fall into a trap that would see them put up a desperate fight for survival. Both of the Greek flanks were the strongest parts of the line, and they were engaged with the lighter elements of the Persians. After some time, the Persian wings collapsed into a rout, making their way into the marshy areas, as they desperately tried to get back to their ships. 
With the collapse of the Persian wings, the Greek line now closed in behind the advancing Persian force, cutting them off from the rest of the army. The Persians were now engaged on all sides and were being overwhelmed. They retreated back to the sea, where they continued to be cut down. Back on the shoreline, it was chaos. The broken wings of the Persian army were trying to board the ships, and now the arrival of the defeated centre saw the rest of the Athenian army also arrive on the scene. The Athenians were now fighting amongst the ships at the shoreline. The tightly packed phalanxes would have surely lost all cohesion by now, with the Greeks now fighting in loose formations or as individual warriors. During the melee on the shore, a number of prominent Athenians fell, with Callimachus, the leader of the Greeks, being one. Sinagiris, the brother of the famous playwright Aeschylus, who would go on to depict the later Battle of Salamis, also fell while at the Persian ships after having both his hands cut off. The Greeks were now calling for fire to make its way up to the shoreline, so they could set the ships ablaze and prevent their escape. In the fighting, the Athenians were able to prevent seven of the Persian ships from putting out to sea, though the rest of the force was intact. It made its way back to a small island, where the Eretrian captives had been left and re-embarked them. The Persian force, although bloodied, was still a threat, and now the fleet made its way south of Attica and would attempt to move on Athens directly. Here I want to bring up a question that has baffled historians. Where was the Persian cavalry? The battle has been fought, but Herodotus doesn't mention anything about cavalry. Out of all the questions raised about the Battle of Marathon, this has to be the one most frequently brought up. Last episode, we heard of the Persians constructing special ships so as to include cavalry in the campaign. We also hear about them being active during the Persian attack on Eritrea. But then once on the plains of Marathon, well suited to cavalry, they are completely absent from Herodotus' account. So where were they? Most historians are working off the assumption that if cavalry had played a part in the battle, we would have heard about their presence. This has then led to theories being proposed to explain their absence from the fighting. So I'll quickly run through the most common theories that have been presented, though we need to keep in mind at this point in time, with the information available, none can be definitively proven. Some have proposed that the cavalry had not yet arrived from Eretria, where they could have still been involved in the mopping up operations or being rested after the fighting there. Also, we hear from Herodotus that the Eretrian captives were taken to an island near Attica while the campaign continued, so it could be possible that the ships that were constructed for the cavalry could have been used to transport the prisoners as they would have had a larger capacity. Meanwhile, the cavalry was waiting back on Euboea for the return of the transports. It does, though, seem like the cavalry should have had time to still make it to Marathon, given that from the landing of the battle, over five days had passed, but again, there are a lot of other details that we just don't know. It also seems unlikely that the Persians would have failed to take the cavalry to Marathon, since they were one of the Persians' strongest arms, and Athens appears to have been their ultimate goal. Not to mention that Marathon seems to have been selected due to it being able to support cavalry. But there are other theories which do assume that the cavalry had landed at Marathon. Cavalry could not stay under arms continually all day, day after day. They would need to be rested and given opportunities to graze. Which leads into the next theory. If they were at Marathon, they would have been sent to the rear in the plains where they could graze and rest before having to be ready to be put under arms again. It is thought that it was during one of these periods that the Athenians launched their attack. There is a sarcophagus that depicts the Battle of Marathon that was modelled off a relief dating to the 5th century, found on one of the buildings of the Agora in Athens. In the depiction, cavalry can be seen in the background of the fighting, which could suggest that cavalry was hastily brought forward from the rear but arrived once the battle was in progress, but too late to be effective. The last theory that we will look at we brought up earlier when looking at what made the Greeks decide to attack, 
which involved the cavalry being re-embarked onto the transports in preparation for part of the army to sail and take Athens undefended. This is similar to the previous theory, in that the cavalry was with the army and presented a great risk to the Greeks in the open, but once removed from the Persian line, this opened an opportunity for the Athenians. Something that has been recorded in later history gives some weight to this possibly being the case. In a book known as the Suda, which was an encyclopedia of the Mediterranean world compiled in the 10th century AD, there was a phrase recorded, cavalry away, which is then accompanied by the following explanation. When Datus had invaded Attica, they say that the Ionians, after his withdrawal, climbed trees and signaled to the Athenians that the cavalry were away, and on learning that they had gone, Miltiades charged and so won a victory. Hence the proverb is said in reference to those breaking ranks. So as we can see, this gives some fuel to the theory that the ships were being loaded and also reasoning of why the Athenians attacked. Though we need to keep in mind, this explanation cannot be found in any other surviving works, and it is first recorded nearly 1500 years after the battle. But it appears it would have been recorded from older sources, we just don't know which ones. The Persian fleet, back out to sea, now rounded the coast of Sunion, south of Attica, and made a course for Pharlion, which served as Athens' port. Back on the plains of Marathon, the Athenians were now arranging their formations back into their tribes so they could march back to Athens, since the entire Athenian army was out of the city. Though ahead of the army, they sent a soldier alone to give word of the victory at Marathon as quickly as possible, and one would assume the threat the Persians still presented. This soldier, who has been given many names over time, but has been more popularly remembered by the name of Pheidippides, ran back to Athens 26 miles away, exhausted from battle and still in his armour crying out as he arrived, Nikkei, Nikkei, we are victorious, before collapsing and dying of exhaustion. The story of this run back to Athens being retold throughout the centuries would then go on to inspire the modern foot race and what we now know as the marathon with tradition seeing this being as the first marathon run. I just want to point out here that the story of the lone runner is absent from Herodotus' account, but appears for the first time in Plutarch's work, towards the end of the 1st century AD, nearly 600 years later, though he appears to have been referring to an older lost work when relating this story, which has since been retold in many modern accounts. The two phalanxes that fought at the centre of the Athenian line had suffered the most in the fighting, and were left behind to secure the battlefield, guarding the prisoners and taking loot from the captured Persian camp and ships. So now, almost the entire Athenian army would complete the marathon in full armour and exhausted from the battle already fought. They needed to make it back to Athens before the Persians arrived. After their hard-forced march back to Athens, they set up camp in another sanctuary dedicated to Heracles. It only made sense since the one dedicated to him at Marathon had served them so very well. The Athenians had beaten the Persian fleet to Athens, as the Persians approached Phalion, they could see the thousands of hoplites once again ready to engage them in battle. The fleet sat off the coast for some time before the Persian commander Datus and Artaphernes decided that the campaign on Athens was no longer possible. His army was tired and lacking provisions, and had just suffered a defeat. Maybe if he could have landed just outside Athens with no resistance, he could have restored the army's morale. But the sight of the Athenians arrayed on the beach in their phalanxes was just too much. It was time to call off the campaign for this season and sail the fleet back to the empire. The Persians didn't arrive back in Asia Minor empty-handed though. They still had the captives of Eretria. Datus and Artaphernes brought the captives to Susa, 
the King Darius to decide their fate, as he yet held bitter grudge against them as they were involved in the Ionian Revolt. Now though, brought before him, he decided to have them settled some 20 miles away from Susa, and put to work for the Empire. A few generations later, the descendants of the Eretrians would still be providing their service to the Empire, though they still retain their Greek tongue. On the battlefield, the Athenians were victorious but exhausted from the tough, drawn-out fight. Overall, they seemed to have suffered very light casualties, while the Persians lost nearly a quarter of their force. The figure given to the Persian dead was 6,400, while the Athenians only suffered 192 dead, and the Plataeans, 11 dead, who were buried in a tomb within a mound on the battlefield, that still stands to this day. The figures given by Herodotus have also been debated to some degree, with modern estimates putting the figures at 1 to 3,000 Greek dead, and 4 to 5,000 Persians killed. It does seem plausible that the Greek dead may have been higher than the 192 given, especially if the battle did last for hours, as Herodotus says. But again, this is assuming it did. In a high-stress situation, and loaded with adrenaline, events can seem to have taken or lasted much longer than they really did. On the Persian numbers, the modern estimate is not that far from what Herodotus presents. Most of the arguments that are proposing that the numbers are exaggerated seem to think the disparity between the Greeks and the Persian losses are too great. As we have seen though, the battle turned into a rout for the Persians. It is quite common for vast disparities to occur in casualties once a side has been routed. Once a side has lost all its cohesion and morale, the routed troops will be virtually defenceless, as they turned and ran. The attacker still in good order, and now with a boost of morale, could charge after the fleeing enemy, where the losses suffered on the routed army would now start to rise dramatically. The day after the battle, the Spartans arrived at Marathon with an advance force of 2,000 hoplites. The festival of the Carnea had come to a close. These 2,000 men would have assembled on their border of their territory and force marched as soon as the festival came to a close, and the appearance of the full moon. The rest of the Spartan army would have then assembled after taking active parts in the festival, following probably a day or two behind the advance guard. Although they arrived too late for the battle, the Spartans toured the battlefield and observed the Persian dead, impressed with the Athenians' feet. It was customary for the Greeks, when victorious, to dedicate items to the gods to show their appreciation for their good fortune. Miltiades had given his helmet as an offering to the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, which now sits at the Archaeological Museum in Olympia, after having been found during excavations there. Inscribed on his helmet is, Miltiades dedicates this helmet to Zeus. To the Greeks, the victory at Marathon was a monumental event in their eyes, preventing the entire subjugation of Greece had the Persians defeated them. What this victory also did was raise their self-awareness of being one of the leading Greek city-states. Their political and social reforms had provided somewhat to this belief, but having defeated the Persian army, which until this time had been seen to be almost unbeatable, further cemented their view. Back in Persia, the defeat would have not have been seen as a disaster. The Persians had secured earth and water from many islands and city-states of North Greece. They had gained revenge on Naxos and Eretria for their part in the Ionian Revolt. The defeat and losses suffered at Marathon would have been but a pinprick in the resources that the Persians could muster. Though, having not taken vengeance on the Athenians would still have meant there was unfinished business. If Darius's 490 campaign was one of revenge on those who had acted against him in the revolt ten years earlier, the scale of planning for his next one can almost only be seen as one for the subjugation of all of Greece. Though he would not see this campaign realised, it would be his son that would be the one to launch it some ten years later. The Athenians celebrated their victory over the Persians while also ensuring honour to the gods who saw their good fortune. 
Pan had his sanctuary dedicated to him, with torch races held honouring him. Many would have dedicated arms like Miltiades, or made sacrifices to their patron gods. Parts of the citizenry also fell into a sense of false security, feeling that that was the end of the Persian threat. Though others were not so sure, and saw that it would be in Athens and the Greek world's best interests, to be prepared to face the Persians once again, understanding that the defeat inflicted on them would be easily absorbed. One man who had fought on the plains of Marathon, as one of the thousands of unarmed heroes, would step out of the shadows of history and take up the spotlight. His name was Themistocles, and he would help drive forward the strategy to deal with a renewed threat from the east. So next time, we'll have a look at Themistocles as he steps forward on the stage of history, and we'll also turn to the preparations that the Persians were making to renew their efforts on Greece. Thank you for your continued support. If you have been enjoying the series, please consider leaving a review at iTunes or your favourite podcasting platform. They do go a long way in supporting the show. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for episode 18, The Second Persian Invasion.